That was exciting. I hope that your heart is encouraged by what Brock had to share. And if you want to know any more, I know my heart is uh, encouraged by all that he just shared. And I didn't know, I mean, the, the depth of it, even though I'd been there and, and had spent time with there. I was kind of focused on some other things, but, um, and, but that's okay. But yeah, the, it's just amazing. I mean, if you see what they've done in, in Buena Vista, and what's the, the, the academy there and, and what's going on there to see the plans for Quiche is, is amazing. And so I'm thank, thankful you guys came. Brock and Carrie came to be with us this morning to, to share with us. Okay. Well, if you know me, and most of you do, you know that I have a hard time cutting. So you're going to have to be, a, a, I'm going to cut some things out this morning. So you're going to have to be a little bit patient with me. And, you know, because I, I am long-winded. Brock knows that. By the way, the last time Brock and I were together, it was raining. And, and it was raining, and it was open, and we were together in the wedding. And I didn't, because we had it all translated, we couldn't cut. And so we're just in the weather, and it's raining. And so it was a, it was a little bit of a mess, but it came out beautifully. So uh, the pictures, if you've, if you've seen them, know, you know that, that that day was wonderful with, with uh, Chloe and Pablo. So... With that, let me start this morning. I'm just getting myself together here. Let me start with praying, and then we'll move forward. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing amongst the people of Guatemala. We, do, we praise you for Brock and Carrie's life, for their family, the the sacrifice of going it says go therefore and make disciples and I am so thankful to see a man a family really that has taken that call seriously to make disciples and has gone forth to do so and I thank you Lord that as we look at as we look at our own culture and we see the the destruction of our own culture I'm amazed at how you're now taking another country, another culture, and you're raising up men from amongst them, and you're sending them out. Lord, and that's happening all over the globe. And so we're thankful for those who are faithful to go and make disciples. We're thankful for that ministry in Guatemala, and we praise you for it. And I pray that in whatever way our church might be involved, that you would just guide us and that we would be waiting on you and how we might help this ministry here in Guatemala, or there in Guatemala. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, let's do this. Let me read the word from Matthew 5, verse 21. I'm going to read down to verse 26. I just want to remind you that we have been in the Sermon on the Mount, and we have just finished up our study in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, 20, which is the which is, I would say, the proposition statement for Jesus' sermon. In verse 21, I pick up there. Let me read down to verse 27. You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be guilty before the courts. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the courts. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty 
enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the, uh, offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last quadrants. Well, every spring, the Amish community has very, two very special services. The first one is called the Ordnungsgemah. It is the dreaded council meeting. The service starts just like any other Sunday service in the Amish community. Yet instead of their normal 45-minute to hour sermon, the preacher speaks up to three hours. After the sermon, the bishop reads the standard, which is the rule, the standard, which is the rules for the community. The standard, these rules, cover all aspects of life in the Amish community. The rules from rules for dress for men and women to the responsibility of husbands and wives within the marriage and the community. These rules cover things like the type of material used for clothing to the mode of transportation they are allowed to use. As many of you know, they still used horse and buggy in many Amish communities. As the bishop reads, each member has to carefully listen to ensure that they are keeping all those rules. And after the rules are recited, each member is asked to confess if they have broken any of the rules. If a confession is made, that member is brought before the body to see if everyone in presence there will forgive them for breaking the rule, whatever rule they broke. At that time, everyone has to agree to forgive them. Now, all of this is done in preparation for a second special church service called the communion service. Now, I won't attempt to tell you what it's actually called because I can't pronounce it, but that's okay. It's another all-day service with a long sermon. There isn't even a break for lunch. They prepare food and allow uh, a few at a time to eat in silence as the, ch- as the church service continues. And after long hours of preaching, they share communion and, and consisting of bread and wine. That, this is followed by foot washing, where the men wash each other's feet at one station while the women wash each other's feet at another station. If a member, going back to the first service, if a member does not measure up to the standard of the rules, they cannot participate in communion. And this is called being put in the ban. Many times these bans only last a short time so that they can make amends and put things right in their lives according to the rules. But sometimes, in more extreme cases, it is a full ban where the community practices what's called shunning. The members are not allowed to eat or even associate with someone who has been banned or shunned. For most Amish, being in good standing with their church, and this is what we have to get, and this is the whole point, for most Amish, being in good standing with their church is their only hope for salvation. For the Amish, being born again is defined as simply being Amish, if you understand what I mean. Therefore, it is incredibly important for them to follow or to be in line with the community rules. Being in line with the community means that they are following the rules as closely as humanly possible. If not, they they depend on the forgiveness, not of the Lord, but of the community around them. Now, these rules are not specifically necessarily based on Scripture and may even vary from community to community. So you might imagine there's a lot of subjectiveness here. 
Some communities may ban things that are okay in other Amish communities, for example. There are subjective rules. Ultimately, Amish life is lived under the watchful eye of the elders who ensure that everyone lives according to their standard. According to them, then, salvation, and this is what I want you to get, salvation is a combination of confessing Jesus as the Son of God, baptism, and following the rules. A member in good standing can only hope that they're good enough to go to heaven when they die. They can only hope to go to heaven. They are told that if they leave or disobey Amish traditions, they're going to hell. Even inadvertently breaking the rules is a cause for grave concern. So, so, the whole system, as you can tell, I hope you can tell, is incredibly oppressive and manipulative. And as Christians who understand the power of God's grace, we should be repulsed by that legalistic system. But it's this type of legalism, that this type of legalism is exactly what Jesus denounced in his earthly, earthly ministry, even as he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as I said early, over the past, earlier, over the past few weeks, we've studied Matthew 5, 17-20, where Jesus gave his main proposition statement for the rest of his sermon. In those verses, Jesus explained uh, kingdom righteousness. He argued that kingdom righteousness completely concurs with right, the righteousness taught in the law and in the prophets, and it comp- comprehensively challenges really all legalistic righteousness. This includes the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees whom Jesus was was speaking to, but it also includes all man-centered and legalistic righteousness. This includes really all modern man-made legalistic righteousness, just like we saw earlier with the Amish, or modern Judaism, or Catholicism, or Jehovah's Witnesses, or the Mormons, or any other religion that is mired in works righteousness. Ultimately, Jesus taught that Christians, that you and I, are to hunger and thirst for His righteousness, the righteousness of God. That's what it says in Matthew 5, 6, which far exceeds any man-made righteousness. Jesus gave then His ultimate proposition statement in Matthew five twenty, where He says, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, ultimately, God requires perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness of the heart. The righteousness that is only found in Christ Himself. This righteousness comes to those who hunger for it by God's grace through faith. And no amount, this is what we have to recognize, no amount of rule following or good works will make us right with God. We can only be right with Him when we possess His righteousness, which He freely imputes upon or gives to those who, are, who seek Him in spirit and truth. Now, starting in Matthew 5.21, where we are today, Jesus begins to give the exposition of kingdom righteousness the righteousness which he requires. Now in today's sermon, from Matthew 5, 21-48, in today's sermon we're going to begin by answering the question, does Jesus teach a new interpretation of the Old Testament law? Then next week we're going to begin to study our outline for this section, which runs from Matthew 5, 21-28, and you can see that if you have the handout. So, you may recall that our Lord started his sermon by giving a description of citizens of his kingdom, the, the kingdom of heaven, the citizens of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. 
In the Beatitudes is what they're called from Matthew 5, 3 through 12. He gave the progression of those who actually become Christians. And in his words, this progression begins with a realization of the bankruptcy of our own character and our own self-righteousness along with our need for true righteousness. A righteousness, by the way, which is alien to us. And it culminates, that is, with the persecuted or with being persecuted for this alien righteousness which we have received from the Lord. Now, I hope you're seeing the connections, the connections back to my introduction. Worldly people who have established a system based on man's righteousness hate anything to do with true righteousness. Worldly people who have based these systems, they absolutely abhor kingdom righteousness. And so after giving the Beatitudes, Jesus goes on to describe the purpose of the Christian in this putrid and dark world. We are to be the salt of the earth, preserving our current world from decaying at an even greater rate. And we're to be, we're to be the light bearers to this world. We're to bring truth of God, the truth of God's word into the darkness surrounding us. We do this by preaching the gospel to the lost, by discipling converts, and by sending them back into the world to do good works. We do these things so that they will see our works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Now this leads us back to Matthew five seventeen through 20 which culminates with, the, again, the main proposition statement for Jesus' sermon, all the way from Matthew 5 to 7. Now as I said earlier, no amount of rule-making or rule-following or rule-making or good works will make us right with God. God saved us by, or saves us by grace through faith. It is his free gift. Not of works so that we can't boast of contributing anything to our salvation. We are, in fact, his workmanship. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10. The question is, the question is, hopefully putting all this together, is who defines true righteousness and who defines good works? And who, and wh- or, who or what is the authority? Ultimately, this is the crux of the conflict between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. It is the crux of the battle, really, between those who advocate a man-centered righteousness versus a true righteousness from God. Now, in Matthew 5, 17 through 19, Jesus proclaimed to his listeners that true righteousness from God is, is defined in the Old Testament. And in Matthew 5.20, he tells them that they need a, a righteousness, an alien righteousness that infinitely exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. So starting in Matthew 5.21, Jesus begins to unpack this by giving them six demanding truths which form, again, our outline for the section. But for today, but for today... I want to take this time to answer the, this question which we brought up earlier. Does, te- does Jesus actually teach a new interpretation of New Testament law or Old Testament law? And in doing this, I want to establish some principles or assumptions for understanding the section, this section, Matthew 5, 21 through 48 of, of his sermon. So, first I want you to see how Jesus outlined this particular section of his sermon. Now, we've already pointed out that his main proposition is in Matthew 5.21. Now, after this, in Matthew 5.21-48, through he begins to expound or expand on Matthew 5.20. Now, I want you to notice, in Matthew 5.21, we read it earlier, Jesus says, You have heard that the ancients were told. Look down at Matthew 5.27. He uses a similar phrase. 
You have heard that it was said. Look down at verse 31. He says, now it was said. And again in 533. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told. And again in Matthew 5.38, it says much the same thing. And lastly in Matthew 5.43. Those phrases form the outline for that section, for this entire section. In these verses, Jesus explains the law by first giving the twisted and false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. This is always their legalistic interpretation of the law. It's very important that you understand that as we get into this section. Then he gives the correct understanding of the law from God's perspective. Jesus' explanation always represents God's original intent and application of each of them. In other words, for the remainder of chapter 5, he will give the true exposition of the law by contrasting it with the false exposition of the Jewish, the Jewish religious establishment. Truly, we could say it this way. He gives what, it, what would be the true account of the law. He does so by giving these six specific statements that no doubt were bandied about or discussed among the scribes and the Pharisees. We will take then, as, as I say, we'll take ample time to break down these statements, but for now, let's just consider the whole section. Now, as we look at these as, as a whole, this section as a whole, we need to recognize some principles that are common to all these statements. Martin Lloyd-Jones suggests that our Lord is really more concerned about these common principles than he is about the particulars. So, saying that, we need to recognize the importance of understanding the whole. Said another way, He's giving these principles, and then he's illustrating them. Therefore, we don't want to lose sight of the forest for the trees. So as we go through these details, I want us to continually keep in mind our Lord's intent. Now, we'll do this by giving five fundamental assumptions, and we'll work through these quickly. First, first we must recognize that Jesus speaks here with absolute authority. Jesus speaks with absolute authority. As we consider his intent for this section of the sermon, I want you to recognize that Jesus is, is really speaking with the absolute authority of God because he is the Son of God. So when he says in Matthew 5.22, but I say to you, but I say to you, he does this with the authority of the Father. In, in the Apostle John's words from John 1.1, 1, 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, I can't say it any better than Martin Lloyd-Jones, so I'll just read a quote from him. He says this, It is vitally important, therefore, that we should realize the authority with which these words come to us. Jesus was not a mere teacher. He was not a mere man. He was not a mere expounder of the law, or just another scribe or Pharisee or prophet. He was infinitely more than that. He was the Son of God in the flesh, presenting the truth of God, end quote. And as such, we need to recognize that he is not giving a new law or showing us some new way of looking at the law. He's teaching the original intent of the law. Jesus came to establish the true intent of the law. He came to demonstrate the law, and he came to teach the law. He himself, you might say, is the embodiment of the true intent of the law. He, he completely embodied it. He shows us really what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You could say it this way. You could say it this way. Jesus is the king, and we are to live like the king. We are to emulate the king. 
And, and so when we look at Jesus' life on the pages of Scripture, he, he just, his life describes what it means to be a kingdom citizen. And as kingdom citizens, we're to behave in a certain way or manner, but, which is always, by the way, which is always according to love for God and love for neighbor. And in doing so, we avoid the legalism that we described among the Amish, or last week we described among the modern Judaism. We, want to, we avoid those things because we're living according to the love of God and for, uh, for the love of God and for the love for neighbor. Now, in the following verses, Matthew 21-48, he illustrates this by using six examples. Now, in these, in these examples, he contrasts the kingdom eth- ethic with the world's legalistic and ultimately empty way of, uh, the world's legalistic and ultimately empty way, and the way of ultimately, as, as exampled by the scribes and the Pharisees. The worldly way is, a, is, a, is to set a bunch of rules and give a prescribed way to follow those rules. The truly, if you think about it, as, as humans, we want to be told what to do, Right? I mean, that's why, so, that's why people get into these religions like the Amish religion because they want to be told what to do. They want to be told what, how to live. They, that's comfortable to them. But that's not the, the kingdom ethic because it's empty of love. Again, I can't say it any better than Martin Lloyd-Jones, so I'll just let him say it. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not treat us as children. It is not another law, but something which gives us life. It lays down certain principles and asks us to apply them. Its essential teaching is that we are given a new outlook and understanding which we must apply with respect to every detail of our lives. That is why the Christian, in a sense, is a man who is always walking on a kind of knife edge. He has no set regulations. Instead, he applies the central, this central principle to every situation that may arise. End quote. I'll never forget, I'll never forget an interview by one of the Duggar kids. I think it might be Ginger. I don't, I don't keep up with the Duggars, but I think it might be Ginger. But the Duggar family had followed Bill Gothard's Institute of Basic Life Principles. These principles give a very detailed instruction of how to live life in this world according to Bill Gothard. In that interview, the, she said it was difficult for her after becoming a Christian because there's no set rules or regulations to govern our lives. You see, here's the point. You and I, we have a fleshly tendency to follow empty rules which are devoid of love. That's, that's the tendency. That's, that's man's tendency, is to follow empty rules which are devoid of love. Therefore, Jesus wants us to understand. He gives us these six examples to illustrate the spirit of the law over and against the letter of the law. Let me give you the second fundamental assumption and this really follows from the first one. We're not to follow the letter of the law only, but the spirit of it. You see, last week I gave you the example, and I've, I've alluded to it already. I gave you the example of Jews living in New York and other large cities using literally fishing line to mark off their safe Sabbath spaces. You remember that story? Well, this week I gave you another example of the Amish who are following man-made rules and restrictions to remain in good, a member in good standing. And I just brought up to you the Duggars and the Institute of Basic Life Principles. All of, the, all of these have much in common with the Jews of Jesus' day. You see, all of these follow the letter of the law, but they don't re- recognize the spirit of the law. They are more concerned with upholding man-made rules 
but have forgotten that God wants us to act according to the spirit of his commands. God never intended his law. Uh, you need to understand this. God never intended his law to be blindly and mechanically followed without concern for his intent. You see, the Jews that we mentioned last week, the Amish this week, and followers of Bill Gothard have this in common. You see, they see the commands as the intent in and of themselves. In other words, they think that meticulously following God's commands or the commands of, that they've made up, if based, loosely based on what God's commands are, that following the law, you could say it that way, and expecting others to do so will bring favor and blessing with God. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. Therefore, they think that because, of, because it, it brings blessing to follow these rules, they, they formulate these elaborate set of rules that constitute what it means to be in good standing with Him. Ultimately, God's intent is to point us to our need for His love and His grace. You see, Paul says in Galatians 3, 24 and 25, that the law is our tutor unto Christ. And His grace. So, so when now that faith has come, we're no longer under that tutor, is what Paul says. So God intended ultimately to, for His law to show us how far short we fall of His glory and, our need for, and, and show us that then our need for a Savior. That's Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, how do we know that? Because of the law. So the law is a tutor unto Christ. But when we focus on the letter only... When we focus on following the rules, we miss God's intent. In the words of the Apostle Paul in, Galatia, or in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. See, Paul emphasized that, that Israel, in this case, had lost sight of the Spirit because they were focusing on the letter. And as Christians, then we must recognize that the letter helps us understand the Spirit, but the letter ultimately doesn't matter. It's the spirit of the law that matters. Does that make sense? Say that again. As Christians, we must understand that the letter of the law points us to the spirit of the law. But it's the, the letter of the law is not what ultimately matters. It's the spirit that matters. And that's what Jesus is showing in this section in Matthew 5, 21-48. Let me illustrate this simply. I recognize my responsibility to love my wife. She was supposed to be sitting here, by the way, when I said this. I understand there are certain things she wants me to do. For example, she wants me to hug her. She wants me to buy flowers for her. She wants me to pay attention to her instead of my phone. Now, there's much, much more that she wants, but you get the picture. I'm an engineer. And I could very easily set up a spreadsheet to ensure that I do all those things on time and on schedule. But do you, how do you think she would feel if I reduced her desires for my love to a, to a spreadsheet? Instead of automatically doing them out of love for her. You see, let me, let me tell you, let me explain the, the illustration even further. As believers, we are to obey the spirit of God's commands out of love for Him. That's why we obey. It's because we love Him. And, and, and taking my, my illustration further, how do you think my wife would feel if I thought that demonstrating my love for her was simply a matter of my actions? 
Right? I can just ro- rotely walk through my actions, but ultimately, my love for her is all about my attitude and, and of love toward her. This brings us to the third fundamental assumption. Our thoughts, motives, and our desires must match our actions. So it's not about just the actions. It's about everything behind them. You see, the, the scribes and the Pharisees uh, in Jesus' day focused almost solely on the action. And they, they ignored the reality of man's desire, the desire of man's heart and mind. They, they had been told this in the Old Testament. The Old Testament teaches this. The prophet Jeremiah taught that the heart is deceitful more, than, or than all, more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? God absolutely condemns sin like murder and adultery. He says, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt commit adultery. These are, are shameful and reprehensible to him and should be to us. Yet man, on the other hand, gravitates to them because our hearts are deceitful above all else and desperately sick. But, as Christians, we have to recognize that sin is more than our actions. This can be illustrated by thinking back to your teenage years, for, the, for most of us, I know for me. I can remember being told to do something by my parents. I knew there would be consequences if I refused. Therefore, many times I obeyed out of fear, but my heart still didn't want to do what my parents wanted or desired. That was the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees and anyone who mechanically or legalistically obeys. You see, God knows our thoughts. He knows our motives. And He, is perfectly, he perfectly knows our desires. Psalm 139, where can I flee, go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? It, it, it doesn't matter where you are. He knows everything about you. He knows everything. He knows your thoughts. So, so my parents, they, they knew when I was obeying just for the sake of avoiding trouble. They knew that. But what we have to recognize is God knows perfectly. And you can't even hide, you can't hide about, or behind one, even one, you can't hide even one stray negative thought from our Lord. You may obey Him with your actions. You may obey Him with your actions. But He knows whether you're obeying Him with your heart. That's the issue. And that's what we have to recognize as we go through this section. Let me, let me give you the, the fourth fundamental assumption as we approach this section of Jesus' sermon. We must not think of the law as draconian or oppressive. We must not think of the law as draconian or oppressive. This is a big problem for those who are in a legalistic, man-centered religion. They see the law primarily as thou shalt not. They see the law primarily as thou shalt not. They see the law as change which don't, chains which don't allow us to do what we want, right? I mean, if you, hear, if you hear people, if you hear sinners talking about, you know, the law, and, and I can't believe God doesn't want me to do that, whatever that is, fill in the blank. I'll never forget an, incred- an incredibly popular Christian singer who divorced her husband and remarried another, another man. Yeah, y'all probably, if you're old enough, know who I'm talking about. <clears throat> In response to people who called her out about it, she said this, I know God wants me to be happy. Of course, let me just admit, I don't profess to know the particulars of what was happening in her marriage. 
While I do know that, that God does want us to find joy in Him, to be happy. His main desire, though, is for us to remain faithful. For us to remain faithful to the vows which we made, by the way, before Him, to Him, and to our spouse. Ultimately, ultimately what we have to recognize is our faithfulness to Him is what brings joy and happiness. Obeying Him is what brings that joy and that happiness to us. So this lady got it upside down, right? She knows that God wants her to be happy, and that is true. That God wants her to be happy. But disobedience never brings happiness. Disobedience never brings happiness, and, and, and that's true in your own life. I also know that the primary ways that he grows us, by the way, is through our relationships, good or bad, right? And through trials, even difficult trials. That's what James says, uh, and consider it all joys, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance, and let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Basically, that happens when you're being obedient. Those difficult times happen when you're being, being obedient. To, to God's commands. I also know this, that in Romans 8.28, we know, he, it, Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. But we have to recognize that He gave His negative commands, and that's the point here, He gave His negative prohibitions primarily for our good. In the words of, again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the ultimate purpose of the law is not to prevent our, prevent our doing certain things that are wrong. Let me say that again. Our ultimate, the ultimate purpose of the law is not merely to prevent our doing certain things that are wrong. Its real object is to lead us positively. Not only to do that which is right, but also to love it. End quote. We have to recognize that true happiness comes to those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are pure in heart, those who are lowly, and oh, by the way, those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. That's the Beatitudes. And God wants us to be lovers of righteousness. He doesn't want us to see the law, uh, going back to the point, He doesn't want us to see the law as draconian. He doesn't want us to see the law as oppressive, as if we're missing out on something good, on something good when we know uh, what, what God wants for us. So uh, basically we see in the law what God wants for us, and, and we're not missing out on something if we do it. You see, that was, ultimately that was Adam and Eve's downfall in the garden, right? That's what started this whole mess in the first place. You may recall that Eve saw that the tree was good for food and was delight to the eyes and desirable to make one wise, so she took of the fruit and she ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Well, John calls that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That's what John calls it in 1 John 2.16. You see, we can falsely believe that God has withheld something good from us, but in reality, He tells us no, he tells us, no, He tells us, thou shalt not for our good. Just like the toddler who is attracted to a hot stove, right? We tell them no because we don't want them to experience the pain. Getting burned, we know that getting burned is not good for them. In the same way, God tells us no because He wants us to enjoy and experience the joy of obedience. 
He knows exactly what we need. He knows what will burn us, and we need to trust Him. Well, let me give you the final, the final fundamental assumption. Final fundamental assumption here is God or Jesus does not concern himself with oppressive rules, but with the development of our spiritual character. When you read this section, as we go through it, I want us to remember that God, uh, that Christ, that Jesus, does not concern himself with oppressive rules, but he's more concerned with the development of our spiritual character. You have to recognize, beloved, you have to recognize that the Bible isn't about endless rules for us to follow. Have you ever wondered how, you know, there's so many people stay away from Christianity, right? Because it seems like a bunch of draconian and, and oppressive rules to follow. If I, was a, I, if I was a betting man, I'm not, but if I were, I would bet just as many people in work, works-based religions who, religions who call themselves Christians see Christianity as a bunch of rules for everyone to follow. In that day of judgment, Sadly, they're, they're going to say these words to Jesus. They're going to say, according to Matthew 7, 20, 22, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles. And oh, by the way, what are those things that they're saying? It's the good word. It's works, right? They're going to they're talk about the works that they did. Tragically, they're, unfortunately, tragically, they're going to hear these dreadful words. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see the connection. Beloved, we have to recognize that Christianity is not about a bunch of rules to follow. Primarily, it's about a relationship. A relationship with our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus. Ultimately, the law then is our tutor showing us our need for Him, our need for His grace. And this grace can only be received by knowing Him, by having a relationship with Him, by having an intimate relationship with Him. And if I'm going to have an intimate relationship with Him, then I'm going to obey Him, right? Right, because I, I want to please Him. And that's the point of the Christian walk. I love Paul's words in Ephesians 2, 4-7. through He says, But God being rich in mercy, because of His great love which he, with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, and He made us alive together with Christ, by great grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And in verse 7, this is Ephesians 2, 7, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The, the point of Christianity is that we'd have a relationship. He's showing, showing kindness to us in, in Christ Jesus. It's not about a bunch of rules to follow. As we progress through this section as it at 521 through 48 we need to recognize that he wants us to become more like him i love his great promise in romans 829 he says in romans 829 because those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that we might so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren or brothers 
Ultimately, that's always what been God's intent. You see, His law shows us His need or our need for His righteousness to be like Him, to be conformed to His to the image of His Son. As we consider these things, as we consider these things, I want to ask you, do you see God's law, His commands, God's commands, as good? Do do you see His intent to make you and I, to make us more like His Son? Do you recognize that God wants you to know Him in an intimate way? And as such, what you need to recognize is that He is more concerned about your heart motives. He wants you to imitate Christ because He wants what is best for you. You ought to be asking yourself, am I imitating Christ in my life? Do I want my life to be Christ? Do I, want my, do I want the world to, to see Christ in, in me? I love Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. We want to live according to His ways. And and the law is not to be oppressive. The law is to point us to our need for Him and and our need to live to be like Him or to live like Him. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't address those who may not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior this morning. If you're here today and you don't know Him as your Lord and Savior, perhaps... You're here today and you see Christianity as a a bunch of oppressive and stuffy rules. Yes, Jesus wants you to obey Him. He calls to you now to turn to Him in saving faith. If He is calling you now, He wants to have a relationship with you. He He wants what's best for you. He wants the best that He has to offer. And what you have to recognize is that's infinite blessing. If you're here today and you don't know Him, I beg you, don't see Christianity as a bunch of rules to follow. Yes, He wants you to obey, but He wants to have a relationship with you. If you're here today and you sense that call on your heart, don't ignore His call. Don't don't let another moment pass before you answer Him before you enter that relationship that He wants to have with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, so many times we stand in the pulpit and we try to preach a message that is coherent. Many times we're distracted. Yet, Lord, I pray this morning that as I've preached, that Your Spirit has gone before my words 
and has reached the heart of the listener. I pray this morning, or this afternoon, that is, that for the Christians out there, the believers that, that truly love you, that they wouldn't live as if Christianity is following a bunch of rules, but that they would live in a relationship with you. A relationship that demonstrates their love, our love for you. That Lord, we would live in such a way that is pleasing to you and that we wouldn't see your commands as oppressive. Lord, that we would see them as what's best for us. Lord, I pray that we would understand Your love for us and that we would grow in our understanding of Your love for us. And that we would live according to that. For those who don't know You this morning, Lord, I do pray that if You're calling them to Yourself, that they would understand that they're calling, being called into a relationship. That Christianity is not about following a bunch of rules and, and about thou shalt not, even though, Lord, you do say that there are things that we shouldn't do. But we shouldn't do them because it's best for us. Because you know what's best. Father, as Christians, as those who love You, I pray that we would model Your goodness in our lives. Your love in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name this morning. Amen.